Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 962. This week, David Lorelo welcomes veteran Major League reliever Adam Ottavino to the show. We hear his thoughts on the lockout situation in spring training before moving on to an in-depth conversation about pitching itself. Adam talks about things like his slider usage, trying to evolve faster than hitters can adapt, and who he tries to model after on the mound. We also hear the story of his pair of Major League hits, what it was like to play for both the Yankees and the Red Sox, and just how different environments can affect pitching performance. You know, you play in Atlanta in the middle of the summer, it might be very, very humid and you can't stop sweating. And you got sweat dripping onto your hand and that can give you trouble with the grip of the ball. Um, you could be in Arizona on a dry night and you can't feel the ball in a different way because it's so dry. So those are two things just weather-wise that are factors uh, depending on where you play. And then that says nothing of the crowd or the general environment at a stadium. But there's something different about every ballpark. I mean, it's one great thing about baseball. They're all different. But before we get to this conversation, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to check out the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the place to get your Fangraphs merch, but you can help yourself to a Fangraphs ad-free membership or buy one as a gift for a friend. It is the best way to both browse the site at blazing fast speeds and also support the site, helping us to keep doing everything we're doing. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hey, baseball fans. This is David Lorela. My guest is Adam Ottavino, veteran reliever, current free agent, and I guess I should mention former Northeastern Husky. Adam, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me, David. Yeah, do you think back to those uh, Northeastern University days very often? Yeah, I do, um, especially this year being in Boston. You know, I lived uh, probably like five or six blocks away from where I used to stay in my dorm. So being back in Boston this year was kind of surreal in that sort of way. You know, um, felt like a lifetime ago, but um, felt good to be back in the old neighborhood again. And you have been playing in the big leagues now for, I think we're up to about a decade by now. And we are primarily going to talk pitching, but we should at least touch on the lockout. What are your thoughts on the current situation? We are speaking on Wednesday morning. Yeah, I'm just kind of waiting to see uh, what happens next. I know the ball currently is in uh, our court and we'll probably have the next presentation at the next uh, negotiation meeting. So just curious to see what steps we're going to take. You know, I've been talking behind the scenes with other guys a little bit. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not getting ahead of myself. I'm not worried about the timeline too much. Uh, Just trying to make sure that, you know, we get the deal that we want. And uh, just encouraging other players when I talk to them to stay level-headed throughout this process. You know, before you know it, we'll be back playing again. Have you been a player rep in the past? Yeah, I was a player rep for, I think, five or maybe even six seasons with the Rockies. You know, and then I've been an alternate everywhere else I've been. So I get all the emails. I'm not as uh, hardcore involved as when I was the rep, but still involved. And this is probably a year where you are probably glad that you are not in the trenches. <laughs> well, I mean, in some ways, some ways, yes. I mean, uh, that's it's a lot of hours and a lot of uh, it's a lot of hard work to be on that subcommittee. I thought about you know trying to run for it a couple of years back, but with my kids and stuff and all the stuff I have going on at home, it just didn't feel like I'd be able to devote enough uh, enough of my time to doing it right. And you know, I'm pretty happy with the guys that we do have. And as we speak, spring training is on hold, at least for the big leaguers. I know that a lot of uh, minor leaguers are reporting you know, as we speak. How much time, Adam, do pitchers actually need once spring training does start? 
given all the off-season training that guys do these days, I'm guessing that it's maybe not quite as much as it used to be. Yeah, I mean, I think we have a little more info on that now, uh, being that we went through the summer camp situation in 2020. You know, that was three weeks, which uh, I think one more week would have been very useful for a lot of the pitchers, uh, myself included. So to me, four weeks sounds like kind of a good amount of time. Um, I know the starters might need a little more time to build up, but uh, I don't think we need like six weeks as it typically is. I think uh, four weeks sounds like a good number to me. Do most players actually like spring training or is it really just a necessary inconvenience? Or does that largely depend on just how much you like to golf? <laughs> I think it I think it goes in cycles. I think when I when you're a young player, you're excited for spring training. You've been thinking about it for a long time. It's maybe your first big league camp. You're excited to get around the guys and uh, get a glimpse of where you want to be. So that's exciting. Then I think when you're in your kind of mid-career, you kind of don't like it as much. You just kind of want to get to the get to the season and uh you don't really appreciate maybe uh spring training as much. And then I think when you're more of a veteran player, you know, I've started to like it again cuz um I need I need the time to get ready like uh physically like that that ramp up is a crucial part uh to getting out the gate strong. Then also I just enjoy being somewhere warm and um you know taking a little break from the cold and giving myself a little chance to mentally prepare uh for battle in the in the regular season. Another question that delves into the the politics of baseball a little bit. If we made you commissioner, would minor league players get paid during spring training? Oh yeah, of course. I, uh, I'm I, <laughs> unless you have an interest in keeping it not that way, then I think you would probably agree that uh, they should get paid for the work they're doing. <laughs> and I think that probably ninety nine percent of Fangraphs audio listeners feel exactly the same way. So you know, come on, MLB, let's do something about that. Yeah, I read some of the uh, I read some of the um, quotes coming out of you know the defense of why not to pay them, and you know it's just a little disheartening because especially these days. I mean, this is a year-round job and to only get paid for a few months of that year where you're dedicating your life to something, that's unfortunate. No, the unspoken reason for not paying them is uh, billionaires like to have even more money than they already have. Yeah. Yeah, Adam, let's uh, let's talk pitching. When sure. we first spoke, I believe it's the first time we spoke, was in spring training of 2015 when you were with the Rockies. And I took a look at the interview, and one thing you said that really stood out to me was, you know, quote, that you're always trying to evolve faster than the hitter can evolve to what you're doing. You know, that's really the opposite of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And you're a guy who's had a lot of success in the big leagues. So just how much evolving have you done over the years and how much have you had to do? I've done a lot. Uh, sometimes maybe maybe I jumped the gun a little bit and i could have stayed with the you know the approach of it's not broke don't fix it but uh that's just not my personality i mean i like to i like to strive to you know be better than i am currently always and try to be try to be the best you know try to be as good as i can be and even if i have a good year um you know in baseball there's so many skills and so many ways that you can add to your game and um, that's the part of the game that i really enjoy the most is kind of kind of uh, in behind the scenes, uh, manipulating my game and figuring out how I can give myself a better chance, you know, in the upcoming season. And that's just uh, what I've been doing every year of my whole career. And uh, between 15 and now, I mean, it's definitely, definitely changed. I mean, some things are still the same. Obviously, I still throw a lot of uh, breaking balls, but I've changed in a lot of ways. You know, I can probably run through them. But the bottom line is when you play a long time, there's not as much mystery when, uh, 
when hitters are coming to the plate. Like they're all definitely aware of my strengths. And so sometimes I can stick with them and sometimes I have to kind of flip the script a little bit. I think we should at least address some of the changes you've made. What is an example of a, a change that you have made in a given season that either worked very well or just turned out to be a really bad idea? Um, okay, well, first thing is um, my, my, my mechanic. So I think in my technique, just in my pitching technique, going back to 2015, I was still throwing quite a bit more across my body than I am now. There was some benefits to throwing uh, extremely cross body. I think it made my breaking ball a little tougher to hit, and it also put a little bit of fear in some of the right-handed batters. And I think it gave me a little bit of a uncomfortable feeling in the box. But uh, also that delivery was hurting me and hurting my ability to kind of command both sides of the plate and to have my arsenal expand into pitches that go both ways. So I kind of cheated my lead foot back towards neutral a little bit over the years. Uh, the worst it was was in 17. It got out of control crossbody, but I was able to fix that pretty quickly. And from 2018 until now, I've been pretty consistent with my, uh, with my stride direction. It's been not fully uh, straight or linear to the plate like most guys are looking for. I'm still crossbody, but it's much more under control and it allows me to execute a wider variety of pitches. So that would say that that would be the first thing I can think of. Yeah. When we spoke in 2015, you had been studying Garrett Richards in large part because the deliveries are fairly similar across the body. Who have you studied, really focused on since that time? Oh, I mean, I watch everybody in the league. You know, I'm a pitching junkie and I, I love watching how everybody gets out. But I would say mostly now, I mean, I try to pay attention to the to the relief pitchers that... um that have large arsenals. Um, I don't find that I learn as much from a guy with like a two pitch guy who just kind of attacks with those two. I, I learn a lot more from guys who are pitching and not, not kind of just throwing out there. So I take a little bit from everybody, but you know, my favorite guys are guys that have a bunch of different weapons and I kind of see what works for them and how they use their, use their pitches to play off each other. So, you know, Blake Trinan, somebody who's made good strides in that direction the last few years. I mean, he's got cutter, slider, sinker, four seam, so that's four options right there. He's and he's been, you know, arguably one of the best handful of pitchers in the game the last few years. So he's somebody uh, that I've been watching, but you know, it doesn't stop with him. A lot of guys. I mean, I watch starters too, but I definitely like to watch the relievers because, you know, I, I want to be a complete pitcher. So I try to watch the guys that I think are a little more complete. With pitch usage in mind, I took a look at your player page at Fangraphs, and for pretty much your entire career, your slider percentage has been been pretty static. Pretty much every year, it's been between you know forty four and forty eight percent. So, with the caveat that you like to vary the shapes of your sliders, is there a reason that the annual usage has been so consistent? You know, w within the parameters of this is, is categorized a slider. Yeah, I think for a while I was varying the shapes really, really well. So it was kind of like having three pitches. Over time, probably gotten a bad habit of kind of throwing one version of it a little too often. And now I've kind of varied it a little bit more. But, you know, the bottom line with the usage of the slider is, you know, it's my best pitch. It's the pitch. If I threw it right down the middle and I knew the guy was going to put it in play, I'd have the most confidence in the outcome going my way. And so really, like uh, when I'm talking about adding to my arsenal and becoming more well-rounded, you know, it's all uh, coming from the standpoint where my slider is my primary pitch. You know, uh, everything is built around that. I'm still going to throw that when in doubt. Uh, it's still the pitch I feel the most comfortable with. Uh, throwing for strikes and in any count. 
So that's never really going to change, I don't think. That'll always be a huge part of my game. And, uh, and I'm really just trying to uh, figure out what to throw at the other uh, 50, 50 some odd percent. The guest that we had on the on the show last weekend was Brian Garman, who is, is a pitching coach in the Red System. And we discussed the fact that they had a pitcher, this was in, in high A, Brian had, who threw 70% sliders. And I asked him why an org would let a guy throw a pitch that often. And you should probably listen, anybody hearing this should listen to Brian, the podcast with Brian to get a longer explanation. But in short, he said, why not throw your best pitch as, as much as possible, as much as reasonably that you know that you can? Yeah, yeah. No, I agree with that. And, th- and that's the thing. Like At some point, you have to have a pitch that you're not afraid of contact with. For me, that's always been my slider. I mean, I have other good pitches, but my slider, uh, the way it's been, um, the way it's been put in play over the years has been pretty consistent. I mean, it's been a low exit velocity pitch. Uh, the damage hasn't been too severe, so that's a pitch I have confidence in that I can throw over the middle. You know, and if you don't have a pitch you feel like you can throw in the strike zone to major league hitters, then you're going to be nibbling uh, even more, and it's just going to be harder to get in the good counts. So, you know, I do think that there's a limit. I mean, 100% is too much, obviously. For me, I've kind of settled into this number. I mean, I don't try to do it. It's just sort of what happens. Lance McCullers fairly famously threw, it was 20-something, I forget the exact number, you know, consecutive curveballs a few yeah. years ago, you know, to effect. So certainly if your pitch is, if a pitch is working, that can be effective. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I've had games like that too. And I think there are, there's definitely a time and a place for it. You just keep going because it's working. And you, you just, the goal is to get three outs. It doesn't matter how you do it. And if you have a day where that's your method with the right circumstances, then I don't see why not. Who, Adam, has the best slider that, that you have seen? I'm thinking primarily guys that you have played with. Well, there's just so many different kinds of sliders. You know, it's uh, everything between a curveball and a cutter, I guess, right? So, I mean, I guess the first one that pops to mind now is just like Chris Sale. You know, I played with him last year, but watching him his whole career, he's got an unbelievable breaking ball from the left side. I think part of the thing with him is there's not too many guys with his release point from the left side. So it's just coming in at an angle that hitters aren't used to seeing and um, it really messes them up. But that's like the big breaking variety of slider in terms of like the shorter, tighter bite, you know, those more gyroscopic sliders, you know, Gary Cole had a really good one, obviously uh, when I played with him. And um, another guy who I think has unbelievable breaking ball uh, is Herman Marquez, who I play with in Colorado. He has curveball and slider, but he has an ability to kind of throw both and uh, throw them slower, throw them harder. Uh, more downward break, more lateral break. So uh, he's somebody that, especially doing it at altitude, uh, he's got a gift a gift for spinning the ball for sure. And with Colorado in mind, uh, we spoke in spring training of 2017 as well when you were with the Rockies. This would have been at Salt River Fields at Talking Stick, which I think you might agree is probably the best yeah. you know, minor league facility, spring training facility in baseball. But one thing that you brought up in that conversation, Adam, and again, this is 2017, you said the hitters were really trending toward driving pitches that are down and that as a result, pitchers are starting to elevate more. That's certainly been the case for years. But you also said at that time that because pitchers were doing that, that hitters were going to start adjusting back to become really good at hitting the high pitch. Has that actually happened? I think so. I think now it's more of a cat and mouse game. Like not every pitcher is living up. A larger percentage are uh, living up as part of their game plan. 
but I saw some data even going back a few years that um, home runs off uh, pitches in the top third of the strike zone kind of trend up throughout the season every year. So it seems like over time in a given year, the hitters start to make that adjustment. They start to get a little more direct to the ball and are able to combat it. Also, like playing with a guy like Chad Green, who, um, you know, I know initially when he was throwing his four seam up, nobody was touching it at all. He kind of learned over time that people were able to get to that pitch if they were anticipating it and you threw enough of them for them to kind of make that adjustment. And so he had to start going to like throwing down and away, you know, initially, maybe early in account to then elevate later. It became tough to just only throw at the top of the zone. And I know there's a lot of whiff up there and there's a lot of, um, which is what you're looking for, you know, obviously with two strikes and sometimes even earlier. But I also think that you can run into trouble if you if you only throw to one area of the strike zone, even if it is that very top, um, which does generate the swings and misses. And how has your career been impacted by the trends that we have seen? Yeah, I mean, I jumped on it early. I, I never really had the, the right type of fastball to throw up top, but I did still use it. I Because my breaking ball is kind of on the slow end, you know, right around 80-ish miles an hour, there's still a big separation velocity-wise between that and my fastball. So even when I was throwing a version of my four-seam that didn't have very much lift to it, I was able to beat them at the top of the zone more so than the bottom. So when I was going for swing and miss with two strikes, I would definitely elevate. Um, and now you've seen it kind of come in the game. Like it's everywhere. It's a part of every pitcher's game uh, for the most part. I don't think it's like the be-all and end-all adjustment. Like I knew that I still had to be able to be effective in all quadrants and all planes of movement. So you know, it's been something I've been chasing for a long time is trying to figure out not only um, when to throw up, but also how to design a pitch that actually plays up even better when I throw it there. And I changed my four seam around to kind of accommodate that. But yeah, I mean, uh, I think it was a big deal. I mean, I pitched up my whole life growing up and then we were told not to as I came up through the minors. And, uh, you know, you feel kind of boxed in when you're just pitching low. Then the hitters made that adjustment, got a little more scoopy with their swings and they're able to drive low pitches. So, you know, the up just became an area that we had to start using. And now that everybody's doing it, it's great. But I don't think it's uh, something that necessarily um, will be successful for till the end of time for everybody. And with the evolution of the game in mind, for a number of years, pitchers would always tell me that they are pitching to contact, that their goal is to throw strikes and draw weak contact. That has changed quite a bit, that now guys will tell me you know, that they are trying to miss bats. Mm-hmm. What about you? Well, I think I've, I, I've been thinking about this a lot, actually, this offseason, because coming out of uh, maybe 2015 on, I, I was really decided I was just going to only go for the strikeouts and missing bats. And that served me pretty well for a while. But then, I, you know, the more I play, I, I see value in kind of being able to do both. If you can find a way to go for weak contact, you know, as a method of being in the strike zone more often early in the count, you know, therefore if they put the ball in play, you can be satisfied that you made a good pitch. That's going to produce weak contact. But if they don't put it in play, then you'll be in an advantageous count. And then with two strikes, you can go for the kill and go for the strikeout. So, you know, I think for me, I've been kind of maybe shifting my strategy uh, in the future to try to throw more pitches to, to yield weak contact early in the count. That way um, if I do that way, I can drive myself more in the strike zone. And if they do put it in play, then that's fine. They're probably not going to drive it. And if I get to two strikes, then I can go for the kill then. You were in Colorado for, I believe, six years. And Coors is, of course, a place where 
pitchers want to miss bats, but it's hard to do because of how the ball moves. When you look back at that time, is there anything that you might have done differently? Or is there a quote-unquote secret to pitching at Coors? I don't think I would have done anything differently because I sort of I sort of gotten on a roll there. I sort of got I got really comfortable there, and I got on a roll there at the end. The last year was probably the best year I pitched, so uh, I really didn't I really wouldn't go back and change much. But I definitely hunted the strikeouts. I mean, you said it. You don't want contact at course. Everything seems to be a hit there. The outfield's just so big. It's not really the power game that you worry about. It's just all the hits, you know, singles, uh, extra singles. So anytime you can keep a guy from putting the ball in play, uh, that's a win at course. Uh, I don't know that there's a secret to it. I think certain arsenals will probably play up a little better in that environment. But ultimately, uh, more than any other place I pitched, you were aware that extra base runners could really kill you. So um, I was just trying to get ahead and put them away as fast as possible. It's become pretty well known that Coors Field is tough on hitters in that they say you play a 10-game homestand there. You then go on the road, and the ball is breaking much differently. So hence, it becomes far more difficult to hit. How does a pitcher approach that? Well, I mean, it's the same thing for a pitcher. Like, your pitches are going to move entirely uh, differently and more so when you're at sea level. So for me, I embraced it. A lot of guys would kind of try to ignore it, which I thought was a mistake. I mean, for me, the first day and and the second day, I was either back at course or on the road. I, when I play catch, I would pay extra attention to the way my ball was moving so that I could kind of recalibrate myself and understand where I have to start my two-seam fastball to get it to come back over the corner. You know, at course, it might I might not be able to aim as far to the left uh, as I can on the road. So I would try to really uh, be cognizant of that difference when I was home and road. Uh, that way there was no... Um, no like learning curve each time. Like I could kind of be sharp right away. Are there other ballparks in baseball that present unique challenges? Yeah, there are, but I, but course is just so obvious, just so drastic because you're dealing with such a big ballpark and, and you can just see that your pitches don't move quite the same. So that, that one's just obviously jumps right out. I mean, there's some places that are different, you know, you play in Atlanta in the middle of the summer, it might be very, very humid and you can't stop sweating and you got, sweat dripping onto your hand and that can give you trouble with the grip of the ball. Um, You could be in Arizona on a dry night and you can't feel the ball in a different way because it's so dry. So those are two things just weather-wise that are factors uh, depending on where you play. And then that says nothing of the crowd or the general environment at a stadium, but there's something different about every ballpark. I mean, it's one great thing about baseball. They're all different, but yeah, Coors is the most obvious one. What, Adam, about mounds or backdrops? You know, yeah. do some mounds feel different or is the depth yeah. to the backstop affect your your vision? Yeah, all that, all that is, those are all subtle differences too. The mounds have different clay on them. Some of them stay together really well. Some of them crumble a little easier. The environment matters with that too. Like if you're at a day game at Coors, a hot day game at Coors where it's dry out, the mound kind of gets really dry, really fast, and it gets kind of cracked and hard. And, you know, the way your cleats just dig into that is totally different than if you're at, you know, Yankee Stadium where the clay is like a little softer and the weather's not as dry. And so your cleats kind of sink into it nicely and kind of hold their ground very well. So, you know, mounds in terms of their clay, that's one thing. Also, you know, they're all supposed to be the same height. You know, I believe that they are, but we had some uh, we had some conspiracy theories going on last year about the Tampa Bay Mound. We had some hitters out there who thought it was high. They were they were measuring the mound on their own and trying to send their data to MLB and trying to figure out why they couldn't hit there. 
And I think, um, you know, that's, that's a funny thing because who's really checking all that stuff, exactly how high the mound is. And, you know, in terms of the backdrops too, I mean, that's definitely a factor. Some parks home plate will give you the impression that it's close and someplace it'll feel a little far, you know, and that can really affect your mentality, you know, um, how, uh, how confident you are that your ball is going to go where you want it to. Um, you want, you want home plate to feel close basically. So those are three ways uh, of what you just mentioned. Well, you want home plate to feel close if you're a flamethrower at least. <laughs> yeah. Or, or if you're a guy who just needs to throw more strikes, I mean, it just feels easier to throw strikes when it's a little closer. <laughs> yeah. Any examples of, of mounds that feel closer or farther? Yeah, I mean, I think City Field feels far for me for some reason. Backdrop, maybe. Oakland feels a little far to me. Close, I would say uh, San Diego feels really close. Colorado felt pretty close. And I'm not totally sure the reason. Like I said, I just, uh, some of those places you feel like you can reach out and touch the catcher. And back to uh, studying pitchers, you know, I had mentioned Garrett Richards earlier. The two of you were teammates in Boston last year. Mm -hmm. Did the two of you talk about the fact that you used to study him? Yeah, I mean, I think we uh, we talked a lot of pitching, obviously, throughout the year. There was a lot of adjustments to make last year, and we've both been around a while, so had plenty of chances to see each other throw. I don't know if I mentioned that I studied him specifically. I might have probably forgot about that, but uh, I definitely you know, I've watched him throw forever. So I, I knew what he was all about. It's interesting to see him up close and how he makes the ball do what it does. So, you know, you start to realize that maybe you're not as similar as you think you are just because you have a similar stride. You know, the way he, his body kind of unwinds is different than mine. And the way his hand kind of comes through the ball is a little different than mine. So, you know, I think when you have somebody up close, you can kind of see whether it's a good fit or not. And maybe we weren't as similar as we thought in in some of those ways but overall i definitely learned a lot a lot by watching him this year cuz he he made a lot of adjustments this year too and it was it was pretty cool to see and with similarities and differences in mind how different are boston and new york you know they're different but they're not that different both fan bases are very passionate they both have high expectations for their team not only in standings but also just like the effort put forth on a given night when you come to the ballpark making sure that you know, you're playing the game the right way. Guys are running balls out, hitting cutoff men, you know, doing all the little things, the the brand of baseball that is expected. Other than that, though, I wouldn't say they're that different. I mean, both fan bases expect a lot, like I said, and they're both used to winning. So it's great. You know, you know, you're going to have a big crowd behind you and you know that the other team is probably a little less comfortable playing in your ballpark than you are. To the extent that a pitcher is going to pitch to the ballpark, Fenway and Yankee Stadium are obviously very different you know, with the wall and the short porch. Did you think about that at all while you were on the mound? Maybe a little bit. You could see certain hitters, particularly at those stadiums, adjusting, you know, where they were trying to where they were trying to hit the ball. Um, guys at Fenway, obviously, if you're a righty, a lot of guys are trying to hook hook the ball towards the monster. And so you can kind of kind of push them more to the big to the big part of the field, right field, you know, try to make them hit the ball in the air over there. It's gonna be hard to hit it hit it over the right fielder. And that's kind of the opposite of what you're looking to do at Yankee Stadium. You know, at Yankee Stadium, if you have big power hitting righty and they're good at staying inside the ball and driving it to right field, they're going to have a lot of success with that approach. And you're just trying to you're trying to make them keep it on the ground or pull something. So I wouldn't say like it, it, you go into the into the game, like tailoring your entire game plan to the ballpark. But you're definitely aware of, you know, what certain hitters are capable of doing in each ballpark and. Uh, maybe in a hitter's count, try to stay away from uh, giving them the easy way out, you know, being able to hit it where they want. How much control does a pitcher have over where the hitter hits the ball? I think quite a bit, actually, because there's just certain pitches with certain swings. You know, there's no way you can hit it 
one way or the other. Like if if you're really like a right-handed hitter trying to drive the ball to right field, it's going to be really hard to drive a pitch that's tailing in on you to right field. I don't care how much you pull your hands inside it. It's going to be hard to drive it that way because the ball's bearing in on you and there's you have arms and you have a bat and it's just hard to keep that barrel really tucked close to your body. You, you just don't have enough space. You know, and vice versa, if you're trying to if you're trying to pull everything, it's really hard to pull a slow outside pitch uh, because you're thinking about just turning and burning on anything that comes middle inside. So I do think you have some effect on where they hit it, you know, even up and down. I mean, obviously, if you throw the ball higher in the zone, you're more likely to get a fly ball than if you throw it low, more likely to get a ground ball, especially if the action on the pitch kind of matches the the location. So like meaning if you throw the ball low and, it, and it's also moving down, downward, that's probably going to yield more, much more ground ball than it's going to yield fly ball. So those are certain certain things that you kind of learn over time. I mean, first lesson in that is like, you know, maybe an infield in situation. And before you get to two strikes and go for the punch out, you're trying to get a ground ball, try to learn how to do that. You know, and it's probably some sort of sinker or change up or, or something in on the hands that they can't get extended on. Yeah, location has me thinking that Bob Tewksbury once told me that the best place for him to pitch Tony Gwynn was right down the middle, <laughs> that he covered the plate so well that pitches right down the middle probably fooled him as much as anything. <laughs> Have you thrown to anybody where that makes any sense at all? The only time I try to throw it right down the middle is uh, if a pitcher if a pitcher's hitting. <laughs> and I know it can't hit, so why mess around? Just throw it right down the middle. But um, no, not not really. I mean, for the most part, I'm trying to, trying to make quality pitches on both sides. No, that was actually unintentionally on your part a perfect segue into one of the last things I want to ask you. DH or no DH? Oh, man, this is a tough one for me. I, I liked that there was both. I liked that there was one league with with that, with the pitchers hitting. Um, I just thought it was a interesting nuance of the game. If your pitcher can hit, that's an advantage because the other one probably can't. You know, uh, the team that has does a better job with their attention to detail in spring training and practice, you know, getting their bunts down, situational hitting, it's going to have an advantage over the other team. I also think in the National League, more guys get involved in the game. Uh, pinch hitters, double switches, more relievers, etc. That might not be the brand of baseball that fans come to see. You know, all the all the moves during the game. But I just thought it was an interesting nuance and uh, something I didn't mind being a part of. You know, the American League game is more it's more kind of just roll it out, roll your nine guys out and our nine guys out, and we'll just see who's better today. So in some ways, I kind of like that. You know, I have no problem playing that style, but I liked having both of them and. Um, I understand why they're getting rid of it, but at the same time, I'll, I'll probably miss it a little bit in the National League. And being a reliever, you have had very few opportunities to hit, but you do have, I believe, two career hits. Yes. We need to talk about those. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I wish I had more. I wish I didn't strike out as many times as I did, but I got two career hits. My claim to fame is that one's left-handed and one's right-handed. So I got a hit from both sides of the plate, and I don't feel like too many pitchers can say that. The first one was off Kyle Loesch. Uh, it was a change up. I hit up the middle at Coors. Skip Schumacher dove for it. He almost had it, but it he didn't get it. Rolled into center, and it's kind of a funny video because my very close friend John Jay was playing center field for the Cardinals, and you can see him kind of laughing and smiling as he comes in to field my single because you know I probably told him I could hit our whole lives coming up in the minors and. For you know, I think he got a kick out of me getting that first hit against them, and then also Alan Craig was playing first base, and you can see him saying something to me on the replay and me laughing about it when I get there. So that was kind of special that I got my first hit against you know people I knew. 
And then the second one, uh, I was hitting right-handed. It was against Zach Duke. Uh, he was on Cincinnati at the time. And uh, actually hit that ball pretty hard. It hit like a line drive to right. I actually thought I was going to get a double out of the box. But the, re- the right fielder was playing me like shallow and towards the line. So he was right there. And then I realized I had to hustle just to make it a single. So luckily I was able to do that. I'm glad I got it out of the way because I know I won't get another chance to get any more hits now that now it's going away. But like I said, I'm happy I got the two. And the first hit, of course, came against your original team with you having been been a Cardinal originally. So they probably saw that and regretted getting rid of you. Well, I'm sure I'm sure it was the hit that did it. Yeah. So for sure. Yeah, we are running out of time. But I should ask you about your future. You know, you are, of course, a free agent. You're in limbo because teams can't reach out. What are you hoping for going forward? You know, how long are you going to be pitching in the big leagues? Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel great. Last year, I had a higher average velocity than I had in several years. So physically, I'm in a good spot for me to be able to uh, keep doing what I'm doing. I feel like I got better uh, over this past year, you know, with some adjustments. And um, I'm really excited to bring them into this new season, uh, whenever that may be. Uh, Definitely hoping to play for a contending team. I've been on five straight playoff teams, so I would like to keep that streak going. And uh, maybe maybe have it be the year where I make it to the end. Uh, that would be really nice. You know, with the lockout, it's been kind of nice mentally that I'm not stressing about free agency because nothing can happen until the lockout's over. But, you know, I am getting a little antsy. I, I would like to get to spring training and get the season going. You know, in the back of my mind, my uh, internal clock tells me I should be somewhere already. And I'm not. So that's always uh, that's an interesting place to be. But like I said, I feel good. I'm excited. Uh, I know what I bring to a team. And just excited to do that again next year. Uh, my goal is to play till I'm 40, so that would be five more years. Any insight on the adjustments that you are working on this winter? Yeah, I mean, uh, you could see some of it came out a little bit towards the end of last year. Uh, more four seams. I, I adjusted. I adjusted uh, the way I throw my four seam fastball has a little more lift on it, a little less run. So it's distinctly different now from my two seam, which now gives me, you know, a little bit more of a effectiveness in the vertical plane and also bringing in a changeup that I've been working on for a really long time. I threw some really effective ones down the stretch last year, uh, even with the games on the line. So that just shows you that I've, I've worked on it enough where I finally feel comfortable with it. And I think paired with the four seam, you know, actually has a chance to become part of my arsenal, especially versus lefties. So four seams and changeups, you know, I think you'll be seeing more of that. And um you know, I've been doing some other things that, uh, you know, I'm not really ready to talk about, I guess, yet. And we'll see if they come into come into play. But, yeah, I'm just trying to be a little more well-rounded and um, get everybody out uh, that's put in front of me this year. So maybe that 44 to 48 percent slider breakdown that we've seen is going to go down a little bit going forward. It might. It might. I, I don't think it'll go too far down because I'm still going to be throwing a lot of them. But I do think it'll probably go down a little bit. I got five pitches right now. So there's got to be some way to fit them all in and make them effective. But if all fails, I'll still sling the slider for sure. No, you are definitely a slider slinger is what Adam Ottavino is known as. And on that note, Adam, thank you for coming on to Fangraphs Adia. All right, thanks. This was great. And thank you, everybody, for listening to Fangraphs Adia. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Adam Ottavino for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider recommending it to a pal or two. It helps us out. Make sure to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. It's the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the website. Like Prospects Week 2022, which is next week. 
Head on over to the homepage to read up on all of our newest analysis from our prospects team. We'll also be back next week with another podcast. Until then, be excellent to each other and have a good weekend.